Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 13. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am very excited to introduce my special guest today, Steve Kelly. Steve, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yes, I am. It is the law. So <laughs> okay. I'm buckled up. All right. For the last three decades, editorial cartoonist Steve Kelly has devoted his attention to public officials the way a radiator grill of a tractor trailer might devote its attention to June bugs. I like that. He has delighted readers by consistently consigning office holders to the single fate they fear most, that of not being taken seriously. Steve's editorial cartoons have appeared in Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, Forbes, Playboy, the Chicago Tribune, USA Today, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post, among many others. His work is a regular feature on many news websites, including Town Hall, in National Public Radio. An honor graduate of Dartmouth College, Steve began his career in 1981 at the San Diego Union Tribune. Steve's work has won many awards, including six first-place honors from the California Newspaper Publishers Association. Along with fellow cartoonist Jeff Parker, Steve created and writes a popular daily comic strip, Dustin, distributed to 330 newspaper clients by King Features Syndicate. Not one to sit still, Steve began writing and performing stand-up comedy, of all things, in 1985. He's appeared at Harris, the Desert Inn, the Riviera in Las Vegas, Trump Plaza in Atlantic City, and Carnegie Hall in New York. And Steve is a veteran of seven appearances on The Tonight Show. By now, you may be asking, Mark, what on earth does Steve have to do with cars? Well, Steve is a self-diagnosed, medically certified car nut. He's an avid collector of the Mercedes-Benz 280SL, the famous Pagoda style, and he's here today to inspire us with his story. So Steve, I've told our listeners a little bit about you, so if you take a moment and share a little bit more about your history, what you do for a living, but most importantly, your interest and your passion for automobiles. Well, uh, Mark, <laughs> you told your listeners far too much about my background, and, and uh, I'm sure that they have heard entirely enough. I will tell you that like most boys when I was coming along I was I, you know I loved automobiles uh I've noticed it in my son when you know long before he could possibly know what an automobile really was or what it did or why he liked them he liked them he he referred to them as broom brooms <laughs> and uh it I just think it's something innate with uh with males of the species my first car uh that when I turned 16 years old and got a driver's license, I desperately, I had been waiting, waiting, waiting to get, if you can believe this, and you said you like German sports cars, Mark. Yes, I do. This might not quite, this might not rate real high on your list. I bought an Opel GT. Do you oh, remember that car? I had a good friend when I was in college who drove an Opel GT. That was a cool car. <laughs> well, for a 16-year-old who was uh, fairly impoverished, it was pretty slick. I really liked it. That was my first car ever, and after totaling that, I went to an MGA because 
as I told you, you know, I, I wasn't earning a whole lot of money at age 16, and nor was I at 17 or 18. So I, I bought an MGA. I really wanted a um, an Austin Healey 3000. Oh, those are beautiful. Beautiful car with a great, I guess they call it a great throat. It purrs. Well, it, it actually it growls like an angry dog, really, the, the uh, Austin Healey does. And I always wanted one, but it was, it was far too expensive. But the, the MGA was a kind of an affordable version of that. It was wide open, uh, rag top, and small, low to the ground, wire spoke wheels, that whole thing. And, and I could work on it. Out of necessity, I think a lot of young men learn basic auto mechanics be- as a defense mechanism, really, because... It's either that or, you know, work six jobs to take care of your old car. Um, so I I learned basic mechanics on that. My father, when I was young, wanted, I wanted to buy a neighbor's Triumph. My father said, well, do you want a car that you have to work on all the time or something you can actually drive? And so I ended up with a Carmen Ghia. Still had to work on that and learned how to do things. But my best friend ended up buying that Triumph. I was very jealous and about two months later, it blew up. So I think sometimes following your dad's advice is good, but that's pretty cool going for Was that for, a TR3? Uh, yes. Great car. Yeah, fun car. Beautiful car. Yeah. So you yeah. went from an Opal. I believe, if memory serves, it was a four-cylinder um, inline, and it was uh, that car had a, it was a straight shift. I remember having to lift the little ring on the shifter in order to go into reverse. Uh-huh. You had to lift it with your uh, index finger and your middle finger. But I don't remember that much more. The headlights were on that car were the, the notable feature. There was a lever that you would, you actually had to throw the lever forward with your right hand. And the, the headlights rotated around 180 degrees from, they were flat on top. It was like James Bond. You know, they were flat. Uh, but when you needed headlights, they flipped around and it looked like they were bug eye. Yeah, I remember those. They rotated somewhat on a center axis, so they flipped right to left, I believe it was. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, that's a very interesting start to to car fanaticism. And you jumped ahead a little bit because one of my questions a little later, but we'll come back to it, is to talk about your first car. So we'll come back and talk about some adventures you had with that in a minute. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, well, (laughs) that's okay. I, I didn't mean to get ahead of you. That's okay. You have that fast little sports car Opal, and you're out in front of me in my little slow car Magia, so. Right. Steve, I always like to start the show with an inspirational quote, a success quote that's been instrumental in informing your life and perhaps your career. It's a good way to get the inspirational tires turning here at Cars Yeah, so take the wheel. I remember you you asked me for one. You said, be prepared with an inspirational quote. And I actually have two. And one of them is very, very short, but I think fundamental. And uh, it, I read it when I was a very young uh, child. It was from The Little Engine That Could, and it was just, I think I can. The Little, <laughs> the little Engine <laughs> That Could played a big role in my life. And um, if you are convinced that you can do something, then you can. Absolutely. In fact, Henry Ford has a great quote, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> well, and a, the kind of the corollary of that is another one of my favorite quotes, which is, argue for your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. Which is to say that if, if you don't believe that you can do something, or if you have an idea, and rather than talking about and thinking about the ways to accomplish it, 
you think of all of the reasons that you can't accomplish it, then you're limited. The minute you start insisting that you have limitations in a particular endeavor, you own them. They're yours, you, and they're next to impossible to overcome. What, that's why you have friends, because your friends are the ones who are always going to tell you why you can't do something, why what you think will work won't work. That's what they're there for. And they love to tell you why you can't accomplish this or you can't accomplish that. I started a comic strip. Actually, I partnered with another guy on it, but it was kind of my little brainchild. About four years ago, we launched it in an industry, the newspaper industry, that, you know, by all accounts is going down the tubes. I was just convinced that we we could do it, that it that if you wrote a funny comic strip that people were with characters that people can relate to, by God, you can get it published. Well, sure enough, we did. And we did it by not arguing for our limitations. We did it by insisting that we could, that I think I can. So my buddy Jeff Parker, who's a political cartoonist, and I began this thing. It launched four years ago. It's called Dustin, and it's done extremely well. It's in 360 newspapers now. I have to update my bio. I noticed that you you mentioned it was in 330. It's in 360. Wow. Which is which is by you know comic strip accounts just. It's, it's a home run. So we're very proud of it. And it's just great that you can still apply yourself and work really hard at something and succeed. It's terrific. It's a wonderful and inspirational story. And I can only imagine when you told your parents, I want to be a cartoonist, the look on their, <laughs> the look on their, their face. And so the fact that I think I can has stuck in your mind this long. And your other quote is a great segue because... I wanted to talk a little bit about your journey, and usually on this show I talk a bit about a person's automotive journey, and I'm going to get to that with your passion for Mercedes-Benz, but I wanted to hear a little bit more, how have you incorporated that success quote into your career? Because I think no matter what type of career people want to go into, if they choose something that's challenging, they need to think they can. So could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on how you stuck with it and and made a living in cartooning and uh, share some of that inspiration with our listeners. Well, and also in in stand-up comedy, I you know, when I was a kid, my mother would watch Red Skelton. Um, I had a, I, you know, I was raised by a single mom and I had two brothers and my mom worked all the time in the real estate business and never had a moment to rest, but she would sit down every now and then watch Red Skelton, and she would laugh, laugh, laugh at this funny man. And as a consequence of that, I wanted to be a comedian because I saw how much uh, mirth it brought to my mother, and she really needed the, <laughs> the mirth, believe me. And when I, I arrived in San Diego, I, I had been working there for a while, and Someone came in and uh, told me that there was a comedy club that had opened, and I went over there and met a comedian uh, who turned out to be a very good friend of mine ever since then. And I told him I wanted to write some jokes for him, that I had always had this bug to write some jokes. And he said, well, you ought to come in on open mic night and, and give it a whirl. 
and it was, you know, terribly, it was frightening. I never realized it, but your palms are capable of sweating. They literally will sweat. <laughs> um, and I went on stage for five minutes, and I had written all of these jokes, and a lot of them didn't do well, but two or three of them did very well. I had, had, they, not, had they not been there, I never would have gone up again. Once I told a joke and the whole audience laughed and was happy, it was, I've, I've never had any sort of uh, uh, artificial stimulant, you know, like uh, cocaine or any of that, but I have to imagine that's what it's like. It's narcotic to tell a joke that you have written basically to make an observation and for people to acknowledge that there's tremendous truth in it and that it's amusing to them. That is, it is just narcotic. So I kept going back and kept writing more jokes, and I built a, you know, built an act around those, the three or four that worked initially, and it, I was just, I was convinced that I could, you know, and rather than being, I mean, there's a large element of of fear in uh, performing in front of an audience. You know, they say that that the thing that people fear most is public speaking, and I've. I've often told people, you know, there are only two times where you stand in front of a brick wall with a group of people in front of you facing you, and it's stand-up comedy and a firing squad. And I think a lot of people would <laughs> rather face the firing squad, frankly. Well, I think you may be right there. It It is a huge fear for most people. So that's really inspirational. I think I can. I think I can. And if you think you can, you can. So that's a great story. You know, I grew up in... I don't want to get too far afield, but I grew up in Virginia, and the uh, VMI is there. It's the Virginia Military Academy. Mm -hmm. And engraved in uh, above the gates of that institution are the words, you can be whatever you resolve to be. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, gosh, you know, these must be really important words because someone went to the trouble to carve them in stone. And, and it really is, it's just paraphrasing the little engine that could, right? Exactly. It's the same thing. It's just you've got to be, you've got to know in your heart that you can do whatever it is that you you want, and that's that's so much of it right there. That's about all of it right there. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell us, Steve, about that moment that instigated your passion for cars, that pivotal time in your life when you kind of realized, man, I'm a car guy. <laughs> well, and you mentioned it um, earlier. I am—I'm a car guy, which it's just in my DNA. It's the Y chromosome that makes virtually all men car fanatics. I developed a particular fancy for the Mercedes-Benz 280SL, and I remember specifically I pulled into a parking garage under a building in San Diego, and I parked my car. I was driving an Alfa Romeo Spider. It was my first car out of college. Oh, and I very drove it across cool. The country and I, the graduate. I was downtown <laughs> and I, yeah, well, it is, except little. that it wasn't the fastback. It was a little square back from, it was a 1970. Mm-hmm. But I parked that car in a parking garage and I looked over and here was this, turned out to be a Mercedes Benz 280SL uh, convertible. It didn't have the top on it. And it, it just, I don't know what it is about that stupid car that just, it just makes you want it. I, I don't know what it is, and I have asked other people. And the interesting thing about it, I actually own four of them now. Those cars are universally 
loved by people, by men and by women and by people my age, I'm 55, by people in their 70s and 80s, and oddly enough, by 10 and 12-year-olds. I mean, I'll park the car in New Orleans and some school kids will walk by and they'll go, cool car, mister. And I think, well, what do these kids know? They don't know anything about the car other than that it's cool to them. So whoever designed that car, and I guess I should know that, he did the right thing. A classic design like that car always lives on, and I think that's the answer to what you're talking about. It is a classic design, and of course the German engineering and the solidness of those vehicles, that's probably part of what got under your skin. That moment in time, that was it, parking next to that car and you fell in love. That was it, and I started, that became the car that I really wanted. Now, I've strayed from the 280SL a couple of times since then. I think that was in the middle 80s that I saw that car, and I I bought a 64 230SL, and then I, at another point, I had a 250SL, and then I went away and just drove, you know, regular cars, always sports cars, but I I came back with a vengeance about 10 years ago. I bought 280 SL, 1970, and I was living in New Orleans, and my girlfriend still lived in San Diego, so I was commuting a lot. I really needed a car in San Diego, so I bought a 280 SL for out there. So I had two of them. Perfect car for sunny San Diego. It is. I mean, they, they're a workhorse as well as being nice to look at, and they're collectible. The, the thing I've always said to people younger than me that the surest way to keep yourself impoverished is to keep buying a new car every couple of years. And the great thing about these, because my girlfriend gives me trouble because, you know, every now and then you go to the mechanic and it's it's $2,000. <laughs> and I laugh because I go, well, yes, but if I had bought just a Mercedes sedan and driven it for two years, uh, the depreciation on that would be ten or twelve or 15000 So you can do a lot of repairs on a classic car because they are appreciating each year. Oh, yes, and right right now those cars are really appreciating nicely. They've really had a, a resurgence. Their antecedents, particularly the um, the Mercedes, the older Mercedes, their antecedents are, are doing extremely well, uh, or their predecessors, not really their antecedents, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But the obviously the Gullwing, that car is ridiculous. And then the 190SL, which I think... They that was the immediate predecessor of the 280SL, but it's a completely different body style. It looks a little like the Gullwing, and those cars are doing phenomenally well in in terms of appreciation. So, um, if you know if you could get get your hands on a good one of those, it would be nice to have. Well, you hit a, a good spot there to talk about an old car and just taking care of it and how you're typically going to be dollars ahead. You don't think you are because of the repair bills, but you're right. Depreciation will, will wipe you out. Steve, I wanted to move forward and what I like to say, get under the hood a little bit and talk a little bit more about your journey, maybe get your hands a little dirty. I'd like you to share with us a huge challenge that you faced. It could be something in your business career and being a cartoonist and a stand-up comic. You may have had a few of those, but something that really pushed you to your breaking point. And more importantly, share with us how you overcame that. I would say that probably my biggest challenge professionally was that I was fired from the first job that I had. I had it for 20 years, and I was working at the San Diego Union, and its later uh, iteration, the Union Tribune, you know, they got tired of my services, and 
they brought a new editor in who didn't care for my work that much, and uh, one thing led to another, and they cut me loose, and I was, you know, adrift for about a year, a year and a half. Figured, well, I'll get another job in as a political cartoonist, and was fortunate and elated when the uh, Times Picayune in New Orleans called and and uh, invited me to come down and interview. And you know, there again, <laughs> there again, uh, in my, I guess I was naive because I just thought that for sure, if I go down there and interview, I'm I'll, I'll be offered the job, even though the odds were not. <laughs> were not that good mm-hmm. because I had been fired and um, you know they, it's it's really hard to get hired once you've been cut loose and I was gosh I was uh, 43 or 44 years old somewhere in there mm-hmm. there again it was the power of positive thinking I, I didn't walk around with my head hung I just just kept moving ahead I was I, I guess I was just lucky it was a combination of luck and and positive thinking. Well, positive thinking has a lot to do with it, for sure. Can you um, talk a little bit more about your first car? Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about that Opal, and maybe you could share one or two stories about some fun times you had in that car. It could be some special trips, maybe you did some work or modifications, some adventures, or just some great memories with that Opal. It's funny, the the stories that I have with that Opal, although they, you know, they were not <laughs> tragically I did manage to burn out the engine in that car because, and I can't remember what, I think it was the oil pump uh, needed to be replaced, and I took the oil pump apart, and I found out what was wrong, and I manufactured a part, if you can believe this, out of a dime. Oh, wow. I drilled a hole in a, in a dime and got it in there and reinstalled it and drove the car, and of course it didn't work, and the car bound up and that was that. I had the engine overhauled. I don't know how much longer I drove it, but I uh, went through a stop sign that I didn't see. I mean, hell, I was 17 years old. You know, you're just not a great driver at that point. Piled into another car. Nobody was hurt. The Opal folded like a pup tent. And uh, that was that. That was the end of the Opal GT. (laughs) That was it for the Opal GT. Lessons learned, and and, uh, I now, I don't I don't try to rebuild parts that I'm incapable of. The nice thing, too, is that they are the, you know, these older cars, they're very mechanical. Everything, you can look at it and see how it works, as opposed to cars now, which are very electronic, and they replace entire circuit boards and components. You know, if if something goes wrong with your window, they have to replace a module. And I, I mean, I couldn't begin to do that. I I drove for a little while when I was I had strayed from two eighty SLs. I had a, a Mercedes Benz SL five hundred, which was I'm sure you're familiar. It has twelve uh, cylinders. Oh yeah. I was <laughs> I used to say it. It has six cylinders per seat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, every, if I just raised the hood. It was like a solid block of metal under there. You couldn't get to anything. I, I couldn't begin to figure. I couldn't have changed a spark plug on, on that car. Literally could not change a spark plug. Pretty complicated. And, um, yeah, so I, I went back to the, to the cars I know and love and that I can work on a little bit. Is there a current project that you're working on right now, Steve, that really has you excited? Maybe a car you're chasing or something having to do with your profession? 
Well, we're, we are um, working on the comic strip, and I am presently working with another guy, a buddy of mine from my comedy days, uh, and we have written, we're probably 92% finished with a screenplay. Oh, wow. Um, that we will very soon, probably within the month, be sending up to um, some studios in Los Angeles. And, you know, again, I've had the chorus of friends who've told me all the reasons why you can't get a, a movie made and why, yes, you can write a screenplay, but, oh, the odds are so far against you. But the way I look at it is, you know, I've, I've always said to people, no matter how many people are vying for a position, like if you go on a job interview and there are 60 people who are also applying for it, you only have to beat one person, and that's the person who would get the job if you hadn't shown up, right? So it's just you and the other guy. So all you have to do is beat the silver medalist. And whatever it is that you're doing, beat the silver medalist. And that's the way I look at writing a screenplay. They're going to make a movie, right? So our movie doesn't have to be better than every movie that's submitted. It just has to be better than one. And that's the one that they were going to make if they hadn't seen ours. We can do that. Um, a guy, Kent Sly, a, a comedian friend of mine, who is a wonderful writer, great with the jokes he contributes to my comic strip, he has had a lot of experience in screenwriting. And so we reconnected in uh, New Orleans one day. He called me up, said he was in town with his wife. We went to lunch, and we started this about a year ago, and we're almost finished. And I'm really, really looking forward to submitting it and seeing what happens. Sounds exciting. Steve, we're up to a part of the interview I call the last lap. And this is where I fire off a series of questions and you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? I am ready. Here we go. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? The best auto advice you can possibly take is to avoid buying new cars on a cycle every couple of years. I, I think fall in love with something and be passionate about it and make it like collecting art where it's it's something that's a value that you'd love to look at, that you, you feel great driving it, and that it, it has an appreciation curve and not a depreciation curve. That's great advice. I've heard that from a few other car fanatics as well. Can you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? I think just to get on something like a dog on a bone and not quit, don't give up, don't surrender. And it's discipline. Uh, I think no matter what it is that you're doing, it's persistence that ultimately uh, prevails. Do you have a resource that you could share with our listeners that may have some relation to cars? Maybe it's a website, a supplier, restoration shop, something that you go to frequently? Well, if there are Mercedes-Benz enthusiasts out there, um, there is Bud's Benz, which is in South Carolina. Oh, no, he's in Georgia. He's in Athens, Georgia. And uh, there's Miller's Benz. Uh, and then there are a number of people on eBay. I have found that if you need an old part on pretty much any car, you can type it into the, uh, uh, my buddy calls it the Google machine, and uh, you can generally find it. I just um, connected with a guy in Canada who, you know, he's got a bunch of cars that he keeps as parts cars, and he, he sells off parts. And sometimes it's the only way to go. And um, it's kind of half of the fun 
is it, it's like a little treasure hunt. Um, I'm restoring one of the tops. I'm having it restored, one of the hard tops on uh, one of my cars. And, you know, there's a piece of chrome that you just can't get anymore unless you do a lot of digging. I would also like to mention uh, Nick's Auto Repair in San Diego, where I've taken my cars for 30-some years. And Nick has retired, but his son, Jim, has taken over. They do spectacular work. Is there a book, Steve, that you've recently read that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, I wish I could tell you there was because it would make me sound smart, but <laughs> I have not read a book in a long time. Um, I, You know, the nature of what I do, I do political cartoons, and so I am constantly reading news. I'm a, a, a voracious consumer of news and uh, current events, so I'm doing that, and I have very little time for pleasure reading. i must express my regrets. I'm sorry. That's okay. You know, years ago, somebody asked me that question, and I said, well, sitting next to my nightstand are about 45 car magazines that I subscribe to every month, so that's where I do all my reading. Does that count? My gosh, 45 car magazines? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, My wife just rolls her eyes sometimes. (laughs) I get a lot of them from Europe as well, so there's a lot of great car magazines out there. They're fun. They get me caught up on everything. Well, listen, we're up to what I call the checkered flag. This is the last question of our interview. So, Steve, this can be a challenge for people. I call it a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, something you couldn't sell to buy other cars with, what would that car be and why? And this is the money is no object. Of course. Um, question, right? Oh, okay. Absolutely, Well, then yes. it, would be, it would be a... Um, a Mercedes-Benz, the Gullwing, only not the Gullwing. It's the SL300, and I would want the convertible version. The Roadster. Yes, although the Gullwing is really cool because it has those doors. I, I really like to, to drive a car without a top on it a lot, although I don't do it enough, but it's nice, it's nice to be able to, to drive in the open road. Yes, I'd, I'd love desperately to have one of those, but that's not going to happen in my lifetime. Unless we unless we sell this movie for, like, really big bucks. There you go. I think I can. I think I can. So good luck. Good luck with dream. that movie. Yes, yes, we all have okay. to have dreams for that, that dream garage. Well, listen, Steve, you've taken us on a really great ride today, and I've enjoyed your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing your life with us and your journey and your passion for cars. I wondered if you could give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset. And then let them know what's the best way for them to learn more about you. And then we'll say goodbye. Well, you'd have to go back to the Google machine. And if you want to see some of my cartoons or um, I've done a little writing, it's, it's all available. Just Google Steve Kelly cartoonist, and it's Kelly with an E-Y. There's plenty of stuff out there. We'll make sure we put that up on your show notes page. And any one parting piece of advice or guidance for our listeners before you drive off into the sunset? Don't follow people too close when you're on the on the interstate. That's that's my <laughs> advice. And no, it really is. That's my advice. Especially not in an old car with drum brakes. Yes. Keep plenty of distance between you and the car in front of you and enjoy your life. That's what I would that's what I would tell your listeners. Very wise advice. Thank you, Steve. You can find links to everything we've talked about and the references that Steve's talked about at carsyeah.com slash Steve Kelly, and that's K-E-L-L-E-Y. Thank you, Steve, for being so generous with your time and your expertise and the fun that you've shared with us today. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great fun. 
Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.